Halleck stared back at Tuek. In that moment, the smuggler reminded him of Duke Leto, a leader of men, courageous, secure in his own position and his own course. He was like the Duke, before Arrakis. Do you wish my blade beside you? Halleck asked. Tuek sat back, relaxed, studying Halleck silently. Do you think of me as fighting men? Halleck pressed. You're the only one of the Duke's lieutenants to escape, Tuek said. Your enemy was overwhelming, yet you rolled with him. You defeated him the way we defeat Arrakis. Eh? We live on sufferance down here, Gurney Halleck, Tuek said. Arrakis is our enemy. One enemy at a time, is that it? That's it. Is that the way the Fremen make out? Perhaps. You said I might find life with a Fremen too tough. They live in the desert, in the open. Is that why? Who knows where the Fremen live? For us, the central plateau is a no-man's land. But I wish to talk more about... I'm told that the guild seldom routes spice lighters in over the desert, Halleck said. But there are rumours that you can see bits of greenery here and there, if you know where to look. Rumours, Tuek sneered. Do you wish to choose now between me and the Fremen? We have a measure of security, our own siech carved out of the rock, our own hidden basins. We live the lives of civilized men. The Fremen are a few ragged bands that we use as spice hunters. But they can kill Harkonnens. And do you wish to know the result? Even now they are being hunted down like animals, with laze guns, because they have no shields. They are being exterminated. Why? Because they killed Harkonnens. Was it Harkonnens they killed? Halleck asked. What do you mean? Haven't you heard that there may have been Sardaka with the Harkonnens? More rumors. But a pogrom. That isn't like the Harkonnens. A pogrom is wasteful. I believe what I see with my own eyes, Tuek said. Make your choice, fighting man, me or the Fremen. I will promise you sanctuary and a chance to draw the blood we both want. Be sure of that. The Fremen will offer you only the life of the hunted. Halleck hesitated, sensing wisdom and sympathy in Tuek's words, yet troubled for no reason he could explain. Trust your own abilities, Tuek said. Whose decisions brought your force through the battle? Yours. Decide. It must be, Halleck said. The Duke and his son are dead. The Harkonnens believe it. Where such things are concerned, I incline to trust the Harkonnens. A grim smile touched Tuek's mouth. But it's about the only trust I give them. Then it must be, Halleck repeated. He held out his right hand, palm up and thumb folded flat against it in the traditional gesture. I'll give you my sword. Accepted. Do you wish me to persuade my men? You'd let them make their own decision? They've followed me this far. But most are Caladan-born. Arrakis isn't what they thought it'd be. Here they've lost everything except their lives. I'd prefer they decided for themselves now. Now is no time for you to falter, Tuek said. They've followed you this far. You need them. Is that it? We can always use experienced fighting men, in these times more than ever. You've accepted my sword. 
Do you wish me to persuade them? I think they'll follow you, Gurney Halleck. Tis to be hoped. Indeed. I may make my own decision in this, then. Your own decision. Halleck pushed himself up from the bucket seat, feeling how much of his reserve strength even that small effort required. For now, I'll see to their quarters and well-being, he said. Consult my quartermaster, Tuick said. Drisk is his name. Tell him it's my wish that you receive every courtesy. I'll join you myself presently. I've some off-shipments of spice to see to first. Fortune passes everywhere, Halleck said. Everywhere, Tuick said. A time of upset is a rare opportunity for our business. Halleck nodded, heard the faint susurration, and felt the air shift as a lock port swung open beside him. He turned, ducked through it, and out of the office. He found himself in the assembly hall through which he and his men had been led by Tuick's aides. It was a long, fairly narrow area, chewed out of the native rock, its smooth surface betraying the use of cutteray burners for the job. The ceiling stretched away high enough to continue the natural supporting curve of the rock and to permit internal air convection currents. Weapons racks and lockers lined the walls. Halleck noted with a touch of pride that those of his men still able to stand were standing, no relaxation in weariness and defeat for them. Smuggler medics were moving among them, tending the wounded. Litter cases were assembled in one area down to the left, each wounded man with an Atreides companion. The Atreides training. We care for our own. It held like a core of native rock in them, Halleck noted. One of his lieutenants stepped forward, carrying Halleck's nine-string balisette out of its case. The man snapped a salute, said, Sir, the medics here say there's no hope for Matai. They have no bone and organ banks here, only outpost medicine. Matai can't last, they say. And he has a request of you. What is it? The lieutenant thrust the balisette forward. Matai wants a song to ease his going, sir. He says you'll know the one. He's asked it of you often enough. The lieutenant swallowed. It's the one called My Woman, sir. If you... I know. Halleck took the balisette, flicked the multi-pick out of its catch on the fingerboard. He drew a soft chord from the instrument, found that someone had already tuned it. There was a burning in his eyes, but he drove that out of his thoughts as he strolled forward, strumming the tune, forcing himself to smile casually. Several of his men and a smuggler medic were bent over one of the litters. One of the men began singing softly as Halleck approached, catching the counterbeat with the ease of long familiarity. My woman stands at her window, curved lines against square glass, upraised arms, bent, downfolded, against sunset red and golded. Come to me. Come to me, warm arms of my lass, for me, for me, the warm arms of my lass. The singer stopped, reached out a bandaged arm, and closed the eyelids of the man on the litter. Halleck drew a final soft chord from the balisette, thinking, Now we are seventy-three. Family life of the Royal Crash is difficult for many people to understand, but I shall try to give you a capsule view of it. My father had only one real friend, I think. 
That was Count Hazimir Fenring, the genetic eunuch and one of the deadliest fighters in the Imperium. The Count, a dapper and ugly little man, brought a new slave concubine to my father one day, and I was dispatched by my mother to spy on the proceedings. All of us spied on my father as a matter of self-protection. One of the slave concubines permitted my father under the Bene Gesserit Guild agreement could not, of course, bear a royal successor. But the intrigues were constant and oppressive in their similarity. We became adept, my mother and sisters and I, at avoiding subtle instruments of death. It may seem a dreadful thing to say, but I'm not at all sure my father was innocent in all these attempts. A royal family is not like other families. Here was a new slave concubine then, red-haired like my father, willowy and graceful. She had a dancer's muscles, and her training obviously had included neuro-enticement. My father looked at her for a long time as she postured unclothed before him. Finally, he said, she is too beautiful. We will save her as a gift. You have no idea how much consternation this restraint created in the royal creche. Subtlety and self-control were, after all, the most deadly threats to us all. In my father's house, by the Princess Irulan. Paul stood outside the still tent in the late afternoon. The crevasse where he had pitched their camp lay in deep shadow. He stared out across the open sand at the distant cliff, wondering if he should waken his mother, who lay asleep in the tent. Folds upon folds of dunes spread beyond their shelter. Away from the setting sun, the dunes exposed greased shadows so black they were like bits of night. And the flatness... His mind searched for something tall in that landscape. But there was no persuading tallness out of heat-addled air and that horizon, no bloom or gently shaken thing to mark the passage of a breeze, only dunes and that distant cliff beneath a sky of burnished silver blue. What if there isn't one of the abandoned testing stations across there? he wondered. What if there are no Fremen either? and the plants we see are only an accident. Within the tent, Jessica awakened, turned onto her back and peered sidelong out the transparent end at Paul. He stood with his back to her, and something about his stance reminded her of his father. She sensed the well of grief rising within her and turned away. Presently she adjusted her still-suit, refreshed herself with water from the tent's catch-pocket, and slipped out to stand and stretch the sleep from her muscles. Paul spoke without turning. I find myself enjoying the quiet here. How the mind gears itself for its environment, she thought, and she recalled a Bene Gesserit axiom. The mind can go either direction under stress, toward positive or toward negative, on or off. Think of it as a spectrum whose extremes are unconsciousness at the negative end and hyperconsciousness at the positive end. The way the mind will lean under stress is strongly influenced by training. It could be a good life here, Paul said. She tried to see the desert through his eyes, seeking to encompass all the rigours this planet accepted as commonplace, wondering at the possible futures Paul had glimpsed. One could be alone out here, she thought, without fear of someone behind you, without fear of the hunter. 
She stepped past Paul, lifted her binoculars, adjusted the oil lenses, and studied the escarpment across from them. Yes, saguaro in the arroyos, and other spiny growth, and a matting of low grasses, yellow-green in the shadows. I'll strike camp, Paul said. Jessica nodded, walked to the fissure's mouth where she could get a sweep of the desert, and swung her binoculars to the left. A salt pan glared white there with a blending of dirty tan at its edges, a field of white out there where white was death. But the pan said another thing. Water. At some time, water had flowed across that glaring white. She lowered her binoculars, adjusted her burnous, listened for a moment to the sound of Paul's movements. The sun dipped lower. Shadows stretched across the salt pan. Lines of wild colour spread over the sunset horizon. Colour streamed into a toe of darkness testing the sand. Coal-coloured shadows spread, and the thick collapse of night blotted the desert. Stars! She stared up at them, sensing Paul's movements as he came up beside her. The desert night focused upward, with a feeling of lift toward the stars. The weight of the day receded. There came a brief flurry of breeze across her face. The first moon will be up soon, Paul said. The pack's ready. I planted the thumper. We could be lost forever in this hell place, she thought, and no one to know. The night wind spread sand runnels that grated across her face, bringing the smell of cinnamon, a shower of odours in the dark. Smell that, Paul said. I can smell it even through the filter, she said. Riches. But will it buy water? She pointed across the basin. There are no artificial lights across there. Fremen would be hidden in a sietch behind those rocks, he said. A sill of silver pushed above the horizon to their right, the first moon. It lifted into view the hand-pattern plain on its face. Jessica studied the white silver of sand exposed in the light. I planted the thumper in the deepest part of the crevasse, Paul said. Whenever I light its candle, it'll give us about thirty minutes. Thirty minutes? Before it starts calling a worm. Oh, I'm ready to go. He slipped away from her side, and she heard his progress back up their fissure. The night is a tunnel, she thought, a hole into tomorrow, if we're to have a tomorrow. She shook her head. Why must I be so morbid? I was trained better than that. Paul returned, took up the pack, led the way down to the first spreading dune where he stopped and listened as his mother came up behind him. He heard her soft progress and the cold, single-grain dribbles of sound, the desert's own code spelling out its measure of safety. "'We must walk without rhythm,' Paul said, and he called up memory of men walking the sand, both prescient memory and real memory. "'Watch how I do it,' he said. "'This is how Fremen walk the sand.' He stepped out onto the windward face of the dune, following the curve of it, moved with a dragging pace. Jessica studied his progress for ten steps, followed, imitating him. She saw the sense of it. They must sound like the natural shifting of sand, like the wind. 
but muscles protested this unnatural, broken pattern. Step, drag, drag, step, step, wait, drag, step. Time stretched out around them. The rock face ahead seemed to grow no nearer. The one behind still towered high. Lump, 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 lump. It was a drumming from the cliff behind. The thumper, Paul hissed. Its pounding continued, and they found difficulty avoiding the rhythm of it in their stride. Lump, 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 lump. They moved in a moonlit bowl, punctured by that hollowed thumping. Down and up, through spilling dunes, step, drag, wait, step. Across pea sand that rolled under their feet, drag, wait, step. And all the while their ears searched for a special hissing. The sound, when it came, started so low that their own dragging passage masked it, but it grew louder and louder out of the west. Lump. Lump, 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 drummed the thumper. The hissing approach spread across the night behind them. They turned their heads as they walked, saw the mound of the coursing worm. Keep moving, Paul whispered. Don't look back. A grating sound of fury exploded from the rock shadows they had left. It was a flailing avalanche of noise. Keep moving, Paul repeating. He saw that they had reached an unmarked point where the two rock faces, the one ahead and the one behind, appeared equally remote. And still behind them, that whipping, frenzied tearing of rocks dominated the night. They moved on, and on, and on. Muscles reached a stage of mechanical aching that seemed to stretch out indefinitely, but Paul saw that the beckoning escarpment ahead of them had climbed higher. Jessica moved in a void of concentration, aware that the pressure of her will alone kept her walking. Dryness ached in her mouth. But the sounds behind drove away all hope of stopping for a sip from her still-suit's catch pockets. Lump, lump. Renewed frenzy erupted from the distant cliff, drowning out the thumper. Silence. Faster, Paul whispered. She nodded knowing he did not see the gesture, but needing the action to tell herself that it was necessary to demand even more from muscles that already were being taxed to their limits, the unnatural movement. The rock face of safety ahead of them climbed into the stars, and Paul saw a plain of flat sand stretching out at the base. He stepped onto it, stumbled in his fatigue, righted himself with an involuntary outthrusting of a foot. Resonant booming shook the sand around them. Paul lurched sideways two steps. Boom! Boom! Drum sand! Jessica hissed. Paul recovered his balance. A sweeping glance took in the sand around them, the rock escarpment perhaps two hundred meters away. Behind them he heard a hissing like the wind, like a riptide where there was no water. Run! Jessica screamed. Paul, run! They ran. Drum sound boomed beneath their feet. Then they were out of it and into pea gravel. For a time the running was a relief to muscles that ached from unfamiliar, rhythmless use. Here was action that could be understood. Here was rhythm. 
but sand and gravel dragged at their feet, and the hissing approach of the worm was storm sound that grew around them. Jessica stumbled to her knees. All she could think of was the fatigue and the sound and the terror. Paul dragged her up. They ran on, hand in hand. A thin pole jutted from the sand ahead of them. They passed it, saw another. Jessica's mind failed to register on the poles until they were passed. There was another wind-etched surface thrust up from a crack in rock. Another. Rock. She felt it through her feet. The shock of unresisting surface gained new strength from the firmer footing. A deep crack stretched its vertical shadow upward into the cliff ahead of them. They sprinted for it, crowded into the narrow hole. Behind them, the sound of the worm's passage stopped. Jessica and Paul turned peered out onto the desert. Where the dunes began, perhaps fifty metres away at the foot of a rock beach, a silver-grey curve broached from the desert, sending rivers of sand and dust cascading all around. It lifted higher, resolved into a giant, questing mouth. It was a round, black hole with edges glistening in the moonlight. The mouth snaked toward the narrow crack where Paul and Jessica huddled. Cinnamon yelled in their nostrils. Moonlight flashed from crystal teeth. Back and forth the great mouth wove. Paul stilled his breathing. Jessica crouched, staring. It took intense concentration of her Bene Gesserit training to put down the primal terrors, subduing a race memory fear that threatened to fill her mind. Paul felt a kind of elation. In some recent instant he had crossed a time barrier into more unknown territory. He could sense the darkness ahead, nothing revealed to his inner eye. It was as though some step he had taken had plunged him into a well, or into the trough of a wave where the future was invisible. The landscape had undergone a profound shifting. Instead of frightening him, the sensation of time-darkness forced a hyper-acceleration of his other senses, he found himself registering every available aspect of the thing that lifted from the sand there seeking him. Its mouth was some eighty metres in diameter, crystal teeth with the curved shape of Chris knives glinting around the rim, the bellow's breath of cinnamon, subtle aldehydes, acids. The worm blotted out the moonlight as it brushed the rocks above them. A shower of small stones and sand cascaded into the narrow hiding place, Paul crowded his mother farther back. Cinnamon. The smell of it flooded across him. What has the worm to do with a spice melange? he asked himself. And he remembered Liet Kynes betraying a veiled reference to some association between worm and spice. Baroom! It was like a peal of dry thunder coming from far off to their right. Again, Baroom! The worm drew back onto the sand, lay there momentarily, its crystal teeth weaving moon flashes. Lump, 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 lump. Another thumper, Paul thought. Again it sounded off to their right. A shudder passed through the worm. It drew farther away into the sand. Only a mounded upper curve remained, like half a bell mouth, the curve of a tunnel rearing above the dunes. Sand rasped. The creature sank farther, retreating, turning. 
It became a mound of cresting sand that curved away through a saddle in the dunes. Paul stepped out of the crack, watched the sand wave recede across the waste toward the new thumper summons. Jessica followed, listening. Lump, 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 lump. Presently the sound stopped. Paul found the tube into his stillsuit, sipped at the reclaimed water. Jessica focused on his action, but her mind felt blank with fatigue and the aftermath of terror. Has it gone for sure? she whispered. Somebody called it, Paul said. Fremen. She felt herself recovering. It was so big. Not as big as the one that got our thopter. Are you sure it was Fremen? They used a thumper. Why would they help us? Maybe they weren't helping us. Maybe they were just calling a worm. Why? An answer lay poised at the edge of his awareness, but refused to come. He had a vision in his mind of something to do with the telescoping barbed sticks in their packs, the maker hooks. Why would they call a worm? Jessica asked. A breath of fear touched his mind, and he forced himself to turn away from his mother to look up the cliff. We'd better find a way up there before daylight, he pointed. Those poles we passed. There are more of them. She looked, following the line of his hand, saw the poles, wind-scratched markers, made out the shadow of a narrow ledge that twisted into a crevasse high above them. They mark a way up the cliff, Paul said. He settled his shoulders into the pack, crossed to the foot of the ledge, and began the climb upward. Jessica waited a moment, resting, restoring her strength. Then she followed. Up they climbed, following the guide poles until the ledge dwindled to a narrow lip at the mouth of a dark crevasse. Paul tipped his head to peer into the shadowed place. He could feel the precarious hold his feet had on the slender ledge, but forced himself to slow caution. He saw only darkness within the crevasse. It stretched away upward, open to the stars at the top. His ears searched, found only sounds he could expect, a tiny spill of sand, an insect burr, the patter of a small running creature. He tested the darkness in the crevasse with one foot, found rock beneath a gritting surface. Slowly he inched around the corner, signalled for his mother to follow. He grasped the loose edge of her robe, helped her around. They looked upward at starlight framed by two rock lips. Paul saw his mother beside him as a cloudy grey movement. If we could only risk a light, he whispered. We have other senses than eyes, she said. Paul slid a foot forward, shifted his weight, and probed with the other foot, met an obstruction. He lifted his foot, found a step, pulled himself up onto it. He reached back, felt his mother's arm, tugged at her robe for her to follow. Another step. It goes on up to the top, I think, he whispered. Shallow and even steps, Jessica thought, man-carved beyond a doubt. She followed the shadowy movement of Paul's progress, feeling out the steps. Rock walls narrowed until her shoulders almost brushed them. The steps ended in a slitted defile about twenty meters long, its floor level, and this opened onto a shallow, moonlit basin. Paul stepped out into the rim of the basin, whispered, What a beautiful place! 
Jessica could only stare in silent agreement from her position a step behind him. In spite of weariness, the irritation of recaths and nose plugs and the confinement of the still suit, in spite of fear and the aching desire for rest, this basin's beauty filled her senses, forcing her to stop and admire it. Like a fairyland, Paul whispered. Jessica nodded. Spreading away in front of her stretched desert growth, bushes, cacti, tiny clumps of leaves, all trembling in the moonlight. The ring walls were dark to her left, moon frosted on her right. This must be a Fremen place, Paul said. There would have to be people for this many plants to survive, she agreed. She uncapped the tube to her still suit's catch pockets, sipped at it. Warm, faintly acrid wetness slipped down her throat. She marked how it refreshed her. The tube's cap grated against flakes of sand as she replaced it. Movement caught Paul's attention, to his right and down on the basin floor, curving out beneath them. He stared down through smoke bushes and weeds into a wedged slab-sand surface of moonlight inhabited by an up-hop, jump, pop-hop of tiny motion. Mice, he hissed. Pop-hop-hop, they went, into shadows and out. Something fell soundlessly past their eyes into the mice. There came a thin screech, a flapping of wings, and a ghostly grey bird lifted away, across the basin, with a small dark shadow in its talons. We need that reminder, Jessica thought. Paul continued to stare across the basin. He inhaled, sensed the softly cutting contralto smell of sage climbing the night. The predatory bird. He thought of it as the way of this desert. It had brought a stillness to the basin so unuttered that the blue milk moonlight could almost be heard flowing across sentinel saguaro and spiked paintbush. There was a low humming of light here, more basic in its harmony than any other music in his universe. We'd better find a place to pitch the tent, he said. Tomorrow we can try to find the Fremen who... Most intruders here regret finding the Fremen. It was a heavy, masculine voice chopping across his words, shattering the moment. The voice came from above them and to their right. Please do not run, intruders, the voice said as Paul made to withdraw into the defile. If you run, you'll only waste your body's water. They want us for the water of our flesh, Jessica thought. Her muscles overrode all fatigue, flowed into maximum redness without external betrayal. She pinpointed the location of the voice, thinking, Such stealth! I didn't hear him! And she realized that the owner of that voice had permitted himself only the small sounds, the natural sounds of the desert. Another voice called from the basin's rim to their left, Make it quick still! Get their water and let's be on our way! We've little enough time before dawn. Paul, less conditioned to emergency response than his mother, felt chagrin that he had stiffened and tried to withdraw, that he had clouded his abilities by a momentary panic. He forced himself now to obey her teachings. Relax, then fall into the semblance of relaxation, then into the arrested whip-snap of muscles that can slash in any direction. Still, he felt the edge of fear within him and knew its source. 
This was blind time, no future he had seen. And they were caught between wild Fremen, whose only interest was the water carried in the flesh of two unshielded bodies. This Fremen religious adaptation, then, is the source of what we now recognize as the pillars of the universe, whose Quizara Tafwid are among us all with signs and proofs and prophecy. They bring us the Arakeen mystical fusion, whose profound beauty is typified by the stirring music built on the old forms, but stamped with the new awakening. Who has not heard and been deeply moved by the old man's hymn? I drove my feet through a desert, whose mirage fluttered like a host. Voracious for glory, greedy for danger, I roamed the horizons of Al-Kulab, watching time-level mountains in its search and its hunger for me. And I saw the sparrows swiftly approach, bolder than the onrushing wolf. They spread in the tree of my youth. I heard the flock in my branches and was caught on their beaks and claws. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. The man crawled across a dune top. He was a moat caught in the glare of the noon sun. He was dressed only in torn remnants of a jabber cloak, his skin bare to the heat through the tatters. The hood had been ripped from the cloak, but the man had fashioned a turban from a torn strip of cloth. Wisps of sandy hair protruded from it, matched by a sparse beard and thick brows. Beneath the blue-within-blue eyes, remains of a dark stain spread down to his cheeks. A matted depression across moustache and beard showed where a still-suit tube had marked out its path from nose to catch pockets. The man stopped half across the dune crest, arms stretched down the slip face. Blood had clotted on his back and on his arms and legs. Patches of yellow-gray sand clung to the wounds. Slowly, he brought his hands under him, pushed himself to his feet, stood there swaying. And even in this almost random action, there remained a trace of once precise movement. I am Liet Kynes. I am His Imperial Majesty's planetologist. Planetary ecologist for Arrakis. I am steward of this land. He stumbled, fell sideways along the crusty surface of the windward face, his hands dug feebly into the sand. I am steward of this sand, he thought. He realized that he was semi-delirious, that he should dig himself into the sand, find the relatively cool underlayer and cover himself with it. But he could still smell the rank, semi-sweet esters of a pre-spice pocket somewhere underneath this sand. He knew the peril within this fact more certainly than any other Fremen. If he could smell the pre-spice mass, that meant the gases deep under the sand were nearing explosive pressure. He had to get away from here. His hands made weak, scrabbling motions along the dune face. A thought spread across his mind, clear, distinct. The real wealth of a planet is in its landscape, how we take part in that basic source of civilization agriculture. And he thought how strange it was that the mind, long fixed on a single track, could not get off that track. The Harkonnen troopers had left him here without water or stillsuit, thinking a worm would get him if the desert didn't. 
They had thought it amusing to leave him alive, to die by inches at the impersonal hands of his planet. The Harkonnens always did find it difficult to kill Fremen, he thought. We won't die easily. I should be dead now. I will be dead soon. But I can't stop being an ecologist. The highest function of ecology is understanding consequences. The voice shocked him because he recognized it and knew the owner of it was dead. It was the voice of his father, who had been planetologist here before him. His father, long dead, killed in the cave-in at Plaster Basin. Got yourself into quite a fix here, son. You should have known the consequences of trying to help the child of that duke. I'm delirious, Kynes thought. The voice seemed to come from his right. Kynes scraped his face through sand, turning to look in that direction. Nothing except a curving stretch of dune dancing with heat devils in the full glare of the sun. The more life there is within a system, the more niches there are for life. The voice came now from his left, from behind him. Why does he keep moving around? Kynes asked himself. Doesn't he want me to see him? Life improves the capacity of the environment to sustain life. Life makes needed nutrients more readily available. It binds more energy into the system through the tremendous chemical interplay from organism to organism. Why does he keep harping on the same subject? Kynes asked himself. I knew that before I was ten. Desert hawks, carrion-eaters in this land as were most wild creatures, began to circle over him. Kynes saw a shadow pass near his hand, forced his head farther around to look upward. The birds were a blurred patch on silver-blue sky, distant flecks of soot floating above him. We are generalists. You can't draw neat lines around planet-wide problems. Planetology is a cut-and-fit science. What's he trying to tell me? Kynes wondered. Is there some consequence I failed to see? His cheek slumped back against the hot sand, and he smelled the burned rock odor beneath the pre-spice gases. From some corner of logic in his mind, a thought formed. Those are carrion-eater birds over me. Perhaps some of my Fremen will see them and come to investigate. To the working planetologist, his most important tool is human beings. You must cultivate ecological literacy among the people. That's why I've created this entirely new form of ecological notation. He's repeating things he said to me when I was a child, Kynes thought. He began to feel cool. But that corner of logic in his mind told him, The sun is overhead. You have no stillsuit, and you're hot. The sun is burning the moisture out of your body. His fingers clawed feebly at the sand. They couldn't even leave me a stillsuit. The presence of moisture in the air helps prevent too rapid evaporation from living bodies. Why does he keep repeating the obvious? Kynes wondered. He tried to think of moisture in the air. Grass covering this dune. Open water somewhere beneath him. A long kanat, 
flowing with water open to the sky except in text illustrations. Open water. Irrigation water. It took 5,000 cubic meters of water to irrigate one hectare of land per growing season, he remembered. Our first goal on Arrakis is grassland provinces. We will start with these mutated poverty grasses. When we have moisture locked in grasslands, we'll move on to start upland forests. Then a few open bodies of water, small at first, and situated along lines of prevailing winds with wind-trap moisture precipitators spaced in the lines to recapture what the wind steals. We must create a true Sirocco, a moist wind, but we will never get away from the necessity for wind traps. Always lecturing me, Kynes thought. Why doesn't he shut up? Can't he see I'm dying? You will die too if you don't get off the bubble that's forming right now deep underneath you. It's there and you know it. You can smell the pre-spice gases. You know the little makers are beginning to lose some of their water into the mass. The thought of that water beneath him was maddening. He imagined it now, sealed off in strata of porous rock by the leathery half-plant, half-animal little makers, and the thin rupture that was pouring a cool stream of clearest, pure, liquid, soothing water into... A pre-spice mass, he inhaled, smelling the rank sweetness. The odor was much richer around him than it had been. Kynes pushed himself to his knees, heard a bird screech, the hurried flapping of wings. This is a spice desert, he thought. There must be Fremen about even in the day sun. Surely they can see the birds and will investigate. Movement across the landscape is a necessity for animal life. Nomad peoples follow the same necessity. Lines of movement adjust to physical needs for water, food, minerals. We must control this movement now. Align it for our purposes. Shut up, old man. We must do a thing on Arrakis never before attempted for an entire planet. We must use man as a constructive ecological force, inserting adapted terraform life, a plant here, an animal there, a man in that place, to transform the water cycle, to build a new kind of landscape. Shut up! It was lines of movement that gave us the first clue to the relationship between worms and spice. A worm? Kynes thought, with a surge of hope. A maker's sure to come when this bubble bursts. But I have no hooks. How can I mount a big maker without hooks? He could feel frustration sapping what little strength remained to him. Water so near, only a hundred meters or so beneath him. A worm sure to come, but no way to trap it on the surface and use it. Kynes pitched forward onto the sand, returning to the shallow depression his movements had defined. He felt sand hot against his left cheek, but the sensation was remote. The Arakeen environment built itself into the evolutionary pattern of native life forms. 
How strange that so few people ever looked up from the spice long enough to wonder at the near-ideal nitrogen-oxygen-CO2 balance being maintained here in the absence of large areas of plant cover. The energy sphere of the planet is there to see and understand. A relentless process, but a process nonetheless. There is a gap in it, then something occupies that gap. Science is made up of so many things that appear obvious after they are explained. I knew the little maker was there, deep in the sand, long before I ever saw it. Please stop lecturing me, father. A hawk landed on the sand near his outstretched hand. Kynes saw it fold its wings, tip its head to stare at him. He summoned the energy to croak at it. The bird hopped away two steps, but continued to stare at him. Men and their works have been a disease on the surface of their planets before now. Nature tends to compensate for diseases, to remove or encapsulate them, to incorporate them into the system in her own way. The hawk lowered its head, stretched its wings, refolded them. It transferred its attention to his outstretched hand. Kynes found that he no longer had the strength to croak at it. The historical system of mutual pillage and extortion stops here on Arrakis. You cannot go on forever stealing what you need without regard to those who come after. The physical qualities of a planet are written into its economic and political record. We have the record in front of us, and our course is obvious. He never could stop lecturing, Kynes thought. Lecturing, 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 always lecturing. The hawk hopped one step closer to Kynes's outstretched hand, turned its head first one way and then the other to study the exposed flesh. Arrakis is a one-crop planet, one crop. It supports a ruling class that lives as ruling classes have lived in all times, while beneath them a semi-human mass of semi-slaves exists on the leavings. It's the masses and the leavings that occupy our attention. These are far more valuable than has ever been suspected. I'm ignoring you, father. Go away. And he thought, surely there must be some of my Fremen near. They cannot help but see the birds over me. They will investigate, if only to see if there's moisture available. The masses of Arrakis will know that we work to make the land flow with water. Most of them, of course, will have only a semi-mystical understanding of how we intend to do this. Many not understanding the prohibitive mass ratio problem, may even think we'll bring water from some other planet rich in it. Let them think anything they wish, as long as they believe in us. In a minute, I'll get up and tell him what I think of him, Kynes thought. Standing there lecturing me when he should be helping me. The bird took another hop closer to Kynes's outstretched hand. Two more hawks drifted down to the sand behind it. Religion and law among our masses must be one and the same. 
An act of disobedience must be a sin and require religious penalties. This will have the dual benefit of bringing both greater obedience and greater bravery. We must depend not so much on the bravery of individuals, you see, as upon the bravery of a whole population. Where is my population now, when I need it most? Kynes thought. He summoned all his strength, moved his hand a finger's width toward the nearest hawk. It hopped backward among its companions, and all stood poised for flight. Our timetable will achieve the stature of a natural phenomenon. A planet's life is a vast, tightly interwoven fabric. Vegetation and animal changes will be determined, at first, by the raw physical forces we manipulate. As they establish themselves, though, our changes will become controlling influences in their own right. And we will have to deal with them, too. Keep in mind, though, that we need control only 3% of the energy's surface, only 3%, to tip the entire structure over into our self-sustaining system. Why aren't you helping me? Kynes wondered. Always the same. When I need you most, you fail me. He wanted to turn his head to stare in the direction of his father's voice, stare the old man down. Muscles refused to answer his demand. Kynes saw the hawk move. It approached his hand, a cautious step at a time, while its companions waited in mock indifference. The hawk stopped only a hop away from his hand. A profound clarity filled Kynes's mind. He saw quite suddenly a potential for Arrakis that his father had never seen. The possibilities along that different path flooded through him. No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero. Reading my mind, Kynes thought. Well, let him. The messages already have been sent to my Siege villages. Nothing can stop them. If the Duke's son is alive, they'll find him and protect him as I have commanded. They may discard the woman, his mother, but they'll save the boy. The hawk took one hop that brought it within slashing distance of his hand. It tipped its head to examine the supine flesh. Abruptly, it straightened, stretched its head upward, and with a single screech, leaped into the air and banked away overhead with its companions behind it. They've come, Kynes thought. My Fremen have found me. Then he heard the sand rumbling. Every Fremen knew the sound, could distinguish it immediately from the noises of worms or other desert life. Somewhere beneath him, the pre-spice mass had accumulated enough water and organic matter from the little makers, had reached the critical stage of wild growth. A gigantic bubble of carbon dioxide was forming deep in the sand, heaving upward in an enormous blow, with a dust whirlpool at its center. It would exchange what had been formed deep in the sand for whatever lay on the surface. The hawks circled overhead, screeching their frustration. They knew what was happening. 
any desert creature would know. And I am a desert creature, Kynes thought. You see me, father? I am a desert creature. He felt the bubble lift him, felt it break and the dust whirlpool engulf him, dragging him down into cool darkness. For a moment, the sensation of coolness and the moisture were blessed relief. Then, as his planet killed him, it occurred to Kynes that his father and all the other scientists were wrong, that the most persistent principles of the universe were accident and error. Even the hawks could appreciate these facts. Prophecy and Prescience How can they be put to the test in the face of the unanswered question? Consider, how much is actual prediction of the waveform, as Muad'Dib referred to his vision image, and how much is the prophet shaping the future to fit the prophecy? What of the harmonics inherent in the act of prophecy? Does the prophet see the future, or does he see a line of weakness, a fault, or cleavage that he may shatter with words or decisions, as a diamond cutter shatters his gem with the blow of a knife? Private Reflections on Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan Get their water, the man calling out of the night had said, and Paul fought down his fear, glanced at his mother. His trained eyes saw her readiness for battle, the waiting whip-snap of her muscles. It would be regrettable should we have to destroy you out of hand, the voice above them said. That's the one who spoke to us first, Jessica thought. There are at least two of them, one to our right and one on our left. Signoro robosa sucaris in manje la chagavas doi me cavavas na beslas lele padrobas. It was the man to their right, calling out across the basin. To Paul, the words were gibberish, but out of her Bene Gesserit training, Jessica recognized the speech. It was Chakobsa, one of the ancient hunting languages, and the man above them was saying that perhaps these were the strangers they sought. In the sudden silence that followed the calling voice, the hoop-wheel face of the second moon, faintly ivory-blue, rolled over the rocks across the basin, bright and peering. Scrambling sounds came from the rocks above and to both sides, dark motions in the moonlight. Many figures flowed through the shadows. A whole troop, Paul thought with a sudden pang. A tall man in a mottled burnous stepped in front of Jessica. His mouth baffle was thrown aside for clear speech, revealing a heavy beard in the side light of the moon, but face and eyes were hidden in the overhang of his hood. What have we here? Gin or human? he asked. When Jessica heard the true banter in his voice, she allowed herself a faint hope. This was the voice of command, the voice that had first shocked them with its intrusion from the night. Human, I warrant, the man said. Jessica sensed rather than saw the knife hidden in a fold of the man's robe. She permitted herself one bitter regret that she and Paul had no shields. Do you also speak? the man asked. Jessica put all the royal arrogance at her command into her manner and voice. Reply was urgent, but she had not heard enough of this man to be certain she had a register on his culture and weaknesses. Who comes on us like criminals out of the night? she demanded. 
The burnoose hooded head showed tension in a sudden twist, then slow relaxation that revealed much. The man had good control. Paul shifted away from his mother to separate them as targets and give each of them a clearer arena of action. The hooded head turned at Paul's movement, opening a wedge of face to moonlight. Jessica saw a sharp nose, one glinting eye, dark, so dark the eye, without any white in it, a heavy brown and upturned mustache. A likely cub, the man said. If you're fugitives from the Harkonnens, it may be your welcome among us. What is it, boy? The possibilities flashed through Paul's mind. A trick? A fact? Immediate decision was needed. Why should you welcome fugitives? he demanded. A child who thinks and speaks like a man, the tall man said. Well now, to answer your question, my young Wally, I am one who does not pay the fai, the water tribute, to the Harkonnens. That is why I might welcome a fugitive. He knows who we are, Paul thought. There's concealment in his voice. I am Stilgar, the Fremen, the tall man said. Does that speed your tongue, boy? It is the same voice, Paul thought and he remembered the council with this man seeking the body of a friend slain by the Harkonnens. I know you, Stilgar, Paul said. I was with my father in council when you came for the water of your friend. You took away with you my father's man, Duncan Idaho, an exchange of friends. And Idaho abandoned us to return to his duke, Stilgar said. Jessica heard the shading of disgust in his voice, held herself prepared for attack. The voice from the rocks above them called, We waste time here still. This is the Duke's son, Stilgar barked. He's certainly the one Liet told us to seek. But a child still. The Duke was a man and this lad used a thumper, Stilgar said. That was a brave crossing he made in the path of Shai Hulu. And Jessica heard him excluding her from his thoughts. Had he already passed sentence? We haven't time for the test, the voice above them protested. Yet he could be Lisan al-Gaib, Stilgar said. He's looking for an omen, Jessica thought. But the woman, the voice above them said. Jessica readied herself anew. There had been death in that voice. Yes, the woman, Stilgar said. And her water. You know the law, said the voice from the rocks. Ones who cannot live with the desert. Be quiet, Stilgar said. Times change. Did Liet command this? asked the voice from the rocks. You heard the voice of the Cielago, Jamis, Stilgar said. Why do you press me? And Jessica thought, Cielago? The clue of the tongue opened wide avenues of understanding. This was the language of Ilm and Fik, and Cielago meant bat a small flying mammal, voice of the Cielago. They had received a distrans message to seek Paul and herself. I but remind you of your duties, friend Stilgar, said the voice above them. My duty is the strength of the tribe, Stilgar said. That is my only duty. I need no one to remind me of it. This child man interests me. He is full-fleshed. He has lived on much water. He has lived away from the father-son. He has not the eyes of the Ibad. 
Yet he does not speak or act like a weakling of the pans, nor did his father. How can this be? We cannot stay out here all night arguing, said the voice from the rocks. If a patrol... I will not tell you again, Jameis, to be quiet, Steelgar said. The man above them remained silent, but Jessica heard him moving, crossing by a leap over a defile and working his way down to the basin floor on their left. The voice of the Cielago suggested there'd be value to us in saving you two, Stilgar said. I can see possibility in this strong boy, man. He is young and can learn. But what of yourself, woman? He stared at Jessica. I have his voice and pattern registered now, Jessica thought. I could control him with a word. But he's a strong man, worth much more to us unblunted and with full freedom of action. We shall see. I am the mother of this boy, Jessica said. In part, his strength which you admire is the product of my training. The strength of a woman can be boundless, Stilgar said. Certain it is in a reverend mother. Are you a reverend mother? For the moment, Jessica put aside the implications of the question, answered truthfully, No. Are you trained in the ways of the desert? No, but many consider my training valuable. We make our own judgments on value, Stilgar said. Every man has the right to his own judgments, she said. It is well that you see the reason, Stilgar said. We cannot dally here to test you, woman. Do you understand? We'd not want your shade to plague us. I will take the boy-man, your son, and he shall have my countenance, sanctuary in my tribe. But for you, woman, you understand there is nothing personal in this? It is the rule, istisla, in the general interest. Is that not enough? Paul took a half-step forward. What are you talking about? Stilgar flicked a glance across Paul but kept his attention on Jessica. Unless you've been deep-trained from childhood to live here, you cannot bring destruction onto an entire tribe. It is the law, and we cannot carry useless— Jessica's motion started as a slumping, deceptive feint to the ground. It was the obvious thing for a weak outworlder to do, and the obvious slows an opponent's reactions. It takes an instant to interpret a known thing when that thing is exposed as something unknown. She shifted as she saw his right shoulder drop to bring a weapon within the folds of his robe to bear on her new position. A turn, a slash of her arm, a whirling of mingled robes, and she was against the rocks with the man helpless in front of her. At his mother's first movement, Paul backed two steps. As she attacked, he dove for shadows. A bearded man rose up in his path, half-crouched, lunging forward with a weapon in one hand. Paul took the man beneath the sternum with a straight-hand jab, sidestepped and chopped the base of his neck, relieving him of the weapon as he fell. Then Paul was into the shadows, scrambling upward among the rocks, the weapon tucked into his waist-sash. He had recognized it in spite of its unfamiliar shape, a projectile weapon, and that said many things about this place. Another clue that shields were not used here. They will concentrate on my mother and that Stilgar fellow. She can handle him. I must get to a safe vantage point where I can threaten them and give her time to escape. There came a chorus of sharp spring clicks from the basin. Projectiles whined off the rocks around him. One of them flicked his robe. He squeezed around a corner in the rocks, found himself in a narrow vertical crack, began inching upward, his back against one side, his feet against the other, slowly, 
as silently as he could. The roar of Stilgar's voice echoed up to him. Get back, you worm-headed lice! She'll break my neck if you come near! A voice out of the basin said, The boy got away still. What are we? Of course he got away, you sand-brained! Easy woman! Tell them to stop hunting my son, Jessica said. They've stopped, woman. He got away as you intended him to. Great gods below, why didn't you say you were a weirding woman and a fighter? Tell your men to fall back, Jessica said. Tell them to go out into the basin where I can see them, and you'd better believe that I know how many of them there are. And she thought, this is the delicate moment. But if this man is as sharp-minded as I think him, we have a chance. Paul inched his way upward, found a narrow ledge on which he could rest and looked down into the basin. Stilgar's voice came up to him. And if I refuse, how can you... Leave be, woman! We mean no harm to you, now. Great gods, if you can do this to the strongest of us, you're worth ten times your weight of water. Now the test of reason, Jessica thought. She said, You ask after the Lisan al-Gaib. You could be the folk of the legend, he said, but I'll believe that when it's been tested. All I know now is that you came here with that stupid duke who... Aye, woman! I care not if you kill me. He was honorable and brave, but it was stupid to put himself in the way of the Harkonnen fist. Silence. Presently, Jessica said, He had no choice, but we'll not argue it. Now, tell that man of yours behind the bush over there to stop trying to bring his weapon to bear on me, or I'll rid the universe of you and take him next. You there! Stilgar roared. Do as she says! But still... Do as she says, you worm-faced, crawling, sand-brained piece of lizard turd. Do it, or I'll help her dismember you. Can't you see the worth of this woman? The man at the bush straightened from his partial concealment, lowered his weapon. He has obeyed, Stilgar said. Now, Jessica said, explain clearly to your people what it is you wish of me. I want no young hothead to make a foolish mistake. When we slip into the villages and towns, we must mask our origin, blend with the Pan and Graben folk, Stilgar said. We carry no weapons, for the Chris knife is sacred. But you, woman, you have the weirding ability of battle. We'd only heard of it, and many doubted, but one cannot doubt what he sees with his own eyes. You mastered an armed Fremen. This is a weapon no search could expose. There was a stirring in the basin as Stilgar's words sank home. And if I agree to teach you the weirding way? My countenance for you, as well as your son. How can we be sure of the truth in your promise? Stilgar's voice lost some of its subtle undertone of reasoning, took on an edge of bitterness. Out here, woman, we carry no paper for contracts. We make no evening promises to be broken at dawn. When a man says a thing, that's the contract. As leader of my people, I put them in bond to my word. Teach us this weirding way, and you have sanctuary with us as long as you wish. Your water shall mingle with our water. Can you speak for all, Fremen? Jessica asked. In time, that may be. But only my brother, Liet, speaks for all, Fremen. Here I promise only secrecy. My people will not speak of you to any other Sietch. 
The Harkonnens have returned to Dune in force, and your duke is dead. It is said that you two died in a mother storm. The hunter does not seek dead game. There's a safety in that, Jessica thought. But these people have good communications, and a message could be sent. I presume there was a reward offered for us, she said. Stilgar remained silent, and she could almost see the thoughts turning over in his head, sensing the shifts of his muscles beneath her hands. Presently, he said, I will say it once more. I've given the tribe's word bond. My people know your worth to us now. What could the Harkonnens give us? Our freedom? Ha! No, you are the Tokwa, that which buys us more than all the spice in the Harkonnen coffers. Then I shall teach you my way of battle, Jessica said, and she sensed the unconscious ritual intensity of her own words. Now will you release me? So be it, Jessica said. She released her hold on him, stepped aside in full view of the bank in the basin. This is the test mashed, she thought, but Paul must know about them even if I die for his knowledge. In the waiting silence, Paul inched forward to get a better view of where his mother stood. As he moved, he heard heavy breathing suddenly stilled above him in the vertical crack of the rock and sensed a faint shadow there outlined against the stars. Stilgar's voice came up from the basin. You up there! Stop hunting the boy! He'll come down presently! The voice of a young boy or a girl sounded from the darkness above Paul. But still... He can't be far from... I said, leave him be, Cheney, you spawn of a lizard. There came a whispered imprecation from above Paul and a low voice. Call me spawn of a lizard, but the shadow pulled back out of view. Paul returned his attention to the basin, picking out the grey-shadowed movement of Stilgar beside his mother. Come in, all of you, Stilgar called. He turned to Jessica. And now I'll ask you how we may be certain you'll fulfill your half of our bargain. You're the ones lived with papers and empty contracts and such as we of the Bene Gesserit don't break our vows any more than you do, Jessica said. There was a protracted silence, then a multiple hissing of voices. A Bene Gesserit witch! Paul brought his captured weapon from his sash, trained it on the dark figure of Stilgar but the man and his companions remained immobile, staring at Jessica. It is the legend, someone said. It was said that the Shadout Mapes gave this report on you, Stilgar said, but a thing so important must be tested. If you are the Bene Gesserit of the legend whose son will lead us to paradise... He shrugged. Jessica sighed, thinking... So, a missionaria protectiva even planted religious safety valves all through this hellhole. Ah well, it'll help, and that's what it was meant to do. She said, The seeress who brought you the legend, she gave it under the binding of Karama and Ijaz, the miracle and the inimitability of the prophecy. This I know. Do you wish a sign? His nostrils flared in the moonlight. We cannot tarry for the rites, he whispered. Jessica recalled a chart Kynes had shown her while arranging emergency escape routes. How long ago, it seemed. There had been a place called Siech Tabor on the chart, and beside it the notation, Stilgar. 
Perhaps when we get to Siech Tabor, she said. The revelation shook him, and Jessica thought, if only he knew the tricks we use. She must have been good, that Bene Gesserit of the Missionaria Protectiva. These Fremen are beautifully prepared to believe in us. Stilgar shifted uneasily. We must go now. She nodded, letting him know that they left with her permission. He looked up at the cliff almost directly at the rock ledge where Paul crouched. You there, lad. You may come down now. He returned his attention to Jessica, spoke with an apologetic tone. Your son made an incredible amount of noise climbing. He has much to learn lest he endanger us all. But he's young. No doubt we have much to teach each other, Jessica said. Meanwhile, you'd best see to your companion out there. My noisy son was a bit rough in disarming him. Stilgar whirled, his hood flapping. Where? Beyond those bushes, she pointed. Stilgar touched two of his men. See to it. He glanced at his companions, identifying them. Jamis is missing. He turned to Jessica. Even your cub knows the weirding way. And you'll notice that my son hasn't stirred from up there as you ordered, Jessica said. The two men Stilgar had sent returned, supporting a third, who stumbled and gasped between them. Stilgar gave them a flicking glance, returned his attention to Jessica. The son will take only your orders, eh? Good. He knows discipline. Paul, you may come down now, Jessica said. Paul stood up, emerging into moonlight above his concealing cleft, slipped the Fremen weapon back into his sash. As he turned, another figure arose from the rocks to face him. In the moonlight and reflection off grey stone, Paul saw a small figure in Fremen robes, a shadowed face peering out at him from the hood, and the muzzle of one of the projectile weapons aimed at him from a fold of robe. I am Cheney, daughter of Liet. The voice was lilting, half filled with laughter. I would not have permitted you to harm my companions, she said. Paul swallowed. The figure in front of him turned into the moon's path, and he saw an elfin face, black pits of eyes. The familiarity of that face, the features out of numberless visions in his earliest prescience, shocked Paul to stillness. He remembered the angry bravado with which he had once described this face from a dream, telling the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, I will meet her. And here was the face, but in no meeting he had ever dreamed. You were as noisy as Shaihulud in a rage, she said and you took the most difficult way up here. Follow me, I'll show you an easier way down. He scrambled out of the cleft, followed the swirling of her robe across a tumbled landscape. She moved like a gazelle, dancing over the rocks. Paul felt hot blood in his face, was thankful for the darkness. That girl! She was like a touch of destiny. He felt caught up on a wave, in tune with a motion that lifted all his spirits. <laughs>